today we are going to pick up in our study of Genesis. We are, we are almost to the point at which I had desired to reach uh, so that we can conclude or pause, I should say, this study. If, if you recall, uh, the book of Genesis is organized around ten, the Hebrew word, toledot, ten sections. These are the generations of, and this occurs ten times in the book. Five of these toledots occur in chapters 1 to 11, and then the other five recur from chapter, uh, actually 11, 27, uh, the last few verses of 11, that basically is chapter 12, uh, to the end of the book. And so the, the hinge of the book of Genesis is the call of Abram in chapter 12. That's, that's where the hinge of history occurs in the old covenant. And so today, uh, we're going to look at a passage that is the fourth of the five Toledotes, uh, chapter 10, 1. Chapter 10 is known as the Table of Nations. And then, of course, it rolls into chapter 11, and you have the Tower of Babel. And sometimes you'll hear preachers preach them separately. And it's not that it's wrong to do so, but you need to understand that literarily, grammatically, chapter 10 and the Tower of Babel, the table through the tower, is one unit. It's one Toledot. So we're going to treat it as one and understand that 10 is written first and then the tower is written second. But really, the tower incident takes place in, in the midst of chapter 10. That's why in chapter 10, at the end of each of the list of the sons, offspring, it'll say each one had their languages. But then chapter 11 begins with everyone had one language. So chapter 11 takes place in the midst of this table, this expanding, branching table of nations. So chapter 10 gets you through what the thing looks like. Chapter 11, 1 to 9 explains how it is that it came to be. Okay? So one unit, one thought, one story. One says what happened, the other says how it came to be. So if you would... Please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Genesis chapter 10, verse 1, as we read what God's servant Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has for us. 10.1 through 11.9. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Medai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiris. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Ripha, and Togmarna. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. From these the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, in their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Rama, and Sabteca. The sons of Rama, Sheba, and Dedan. 
Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehobothir, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala. That is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lehabim, Naphtahim, Pathrusim, Kalusim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtarim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arbidites, the Zamorites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Admah, and Zeboim as far as Lysha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Ashur, Arkpashad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arpachshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almodad, Sheleph, Hazarmaveth, Jerah, Hadoram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abamael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Shafar to the hill country to the east. These are the sons of Shem, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations, and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech." So the earth, so the Lord dispersed from there, them from there, over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. 
Brothers and sisters, this, even this, is God's word to us. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the living God stands forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your word, for explaining to us how things came to be and for giving us insight as to how things must be. We ask, O oh Lord, that we would be gracious and patient and kind and that we would see those around us as our fellow man and that we would seek and save the lost. And grant, O oh Lord, that in Christ we would be faithful to be one man. And, O oh Lord, in all this, may you get the glory. For Christ's sake we pray it. Amen. Well, this passage that we have just read, this Toledot, we read the entire section that Moses penned uh, here. It, it really is setting the stage now to understand the world situation when God calls Abram. This is kind of a bleak passage. And this is one of those passages that really, uh, it, it calls for, dare I say, a, a grown-up view of the world. This calls for a grown-up reading of Scripture. Uh, this, is not, this is not Veggie Tales Christianity. Uh, we, we, we love thinking in terms of, of, of nice and simple, neat. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, is that this is a complex world in which we live in. And there are complex competing realities. There are dual kingdoms on this earth. And this passage here is setting the stage for us to better understand. This passage, like the whole of the book, just as a reminder, was written to the people of Israel after they had come out of Egypt, after they had passed through the Red Sea, after they had seen the promised land, they came back, received reports that, oh, it's, it's the, the, the foes there are too formidable, and so they rebelled for the last time, and God said, this generation will perish. And it's the ones who you said that they would become a prey to the inhabitants, your little ones, your children, they're the ones that are going to go in and take occupancy. And so in this 40 years of wandering, the Lord gives the people the backstory so that going forward, the people of God would understand better their place in the world and what God is doing in the world. But as it is, this passage on the face of it ends off with a very bleak picture of a scattered, divided world driven away from the Lord and from His presence. It has echoes of chapter 3. We're at the end of chapter 3. After they sinned, the Lord makes provision for them, but then drives them out to work. And here, the people, after having refused to comply with the Lord's creation mandates and having come together in pride, in defiance, and in insurmountable hubris, the Lord once again drives them out. And when the people of Israel received this word, remember, they didn't just receive this word. 
They received all of Moses' Moses' writings, and and so they have a picture here of of who they are as a people called out with a task to be a light to the nations, and they've been promised the land, but what's the threat that God has put before Israel if they will not walk in his ways and keep his statutes? What will happen to them in the land? They too will be cast out. And so this passage then helps Israel and helps us understand our place in this world. Now, as I said before uh, I read the scripture, chapter 11, 1 through 9, takes place in the middle of chapter 10. In fact, in chapter 10, when it's talking about uh, Peleg, you see chapter 11 taking place. In his day, the earth was divided. Okay? Uh, that's, that's not the movement of tectonic plates that would have happened during the flood or as the waters were receding. This is referring to the division of people scattered. And, and we don't understand what exactly happened here. D- does it mean that the Lord came down and when it says he dispersed them, that, that, that they woke up in the morning and all of a sudden they're in the Arctic? Or that, you know, they woke up and they're in the jungle? Uh, or did... What I think more likely happened is that the Lord implanted almost like this instinctual burning desire to get out and get moved. Kind of like salmon have an instinctual desire to migrate and the geese to migrate. They just, I think God worked providentially through an internal burning desire. Because uh, you would think that if it, it would be pretty astounding if, if I and my kids and stuff woke up the next day and all of a sudden we're all speaking different languages... I'm not sure my first impulse would have been to just, all right, well, forget you people, I'm out of here. Uh, I, I probably would have wanted to try to figure this out. But that's why the, I believe the Lord put within them a burning internal desire to geographically disperse according to their languages. But it could be that the Lord basically miracled them transportingly overnight. I don't know. We don't know. But what we do know is that this passage is stressing at the beginning of chapter 11 the the unity that people share. And we're thinking, isn't unity good? Brothers and sisters, one of the, again, this is grown-up stuff here. Being united for the wrong thing is not a good thing. Being united in sin is never good. A good thing. But here's how chapter 1, chapter 11, verse 1 stresses their unity. Okay, look at verse 11, 1. Now the whole earth had one language. But it doesn't stop there. We have one language, English, with the British, with the Australians, with, with the Canadians. We have one language. But Moses is wanting them to understand that their unity went even further. They not only had one language, what did they have? And the same words. You know what that's referring to? Metaphors. Idioms. Ways of speaking. Dialects are an interesting thing. I mean, it's kind of weird. Uh, this, is, this is hyperbolic overstatement, but, but in Britain, it's like they've got a different dialect Every couple neighborhoods, it's like every neighborhood speaks different. In, in, the, in, in this U.S., I mean, think about it. The, the people came from the same place, basically, 
But even by the time of the Continental Congress, so what's that, a couple hundred years of, of well-defined language differences existed between the South, which spoke like the South now. So, you know, what did Thomas Jefferson sound like? How did they talk in Virginia? He talked like that. Now, he used better diction and stuff because he was educated, but he, he talked like a Virginian. And how, and how did, how, how did uh, 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 John Adams talk? He talked like he's from Boston. Well-defined language differences happen. Now, language doesn't just mean what we say. If you've studied language, you understand that language is the product of culture. What we say, the words we use, the expressions we utter, this reflects our culture. Which is why teens of every generation have a special language. Whether it's whether it's groovy, whether it's rad, whether it's dope. Well, I don't know what's the latest. What's, what's the latest, kids? What? Sick? Or is that, too, is that old too? I don't know. Okay. But culture is reflected in our language. How we speak shapes is shaped by our environment. Okay, there's, there's this weird dance between our culture, our surroundings, our shared values and meanings, and the way we talk. And so Moses just sums it all up by saying they had one language and the same words. He's stressing unity. They were united. And we've learned in previous lessons that after the fall, sin spread. Sin has a cascading quality to it. It's like a snowball that rolls down a hill. And it gets bigger and bigger and bigger until it pretty soon causes an entire avalanche. Have you ever beheld an avalanche? It's thunderous. I've only seen one avalanche, and it was a small one, and it was in the distance, thankfully. But you could hear it rumbling. And it's terrifying. And sin does that. It starts small, but it goes and it grows and it spreads until ultimately the earth was polluted. And God decided to wipe things out and start anew. And we saw last week that even given a clean slate where sin had literally been washed from the earth, nonetheless, wherever we go, there we are. And we have sin will travel. So we showed up, our forefathers showed up, and immediately reintroduced sin into the world. Sin spreads. And so with a shared language, a shared culture, shared values, what is it that people do? When they were given, yet again, God's gracious provision... And told to fill the earth, teem upon its surface, spread, grow, cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. What do they do? Well, you know, this passage shows what a sinful people do. Instead of obeying, we see their pride. 
We see their stubborn insistence that they are going to rebel against God and his program for mankind. You see it in verse 3. Come, let us make bricks and burn them together. And then verse 4. Then they said, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed. But isn't that what God wanted them to do? Yes. But once again, mankind has set its face towards disobeying the purposes of God. They don't want to do what God wants them to do. And then, in their pride, in their arrogance, in their hubris, they say, let's build ourselves a tower that reaches into the heavens and let's make a name for ourselves. Now, that doesn't mean there's other people out there that... No, what that means is they want to have a lasting memory in their honor. They want to build something that, that a thousand years from now, people are going to look at that and say, wow, they were awesome. They want to have a name. Now, contrast that with what God tells Abram just, just a chapter later in chapter 12. These people want to make a name for themselves. And what does God tell Abram in chapter 12? Verse 2, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. So right here, when you juxtapose the two, you see illustrated the premise that is stated in Scripture, that the one who seeks to honor themselves is met with God's opposition. And the one who humbles himself before God and gives God the glory is in fact honored by God. And so these first citizens of the world decide in their hubris, their arrogance, their pride, that they're going to build a city, they're going to create for themselves their own lasting legacy. And what's funny is that you can see, you, you can almost hear the tone of derision in Moses' voice in verse 3. Uh, you know, the, the people of Israel knew a thing or two about making bricks, right? Moses had just led them out of a place where, where, where Moses, uh, when, when he, in, in response to his ministry, Pharaoh had just had established a little work detail about making bricks without straw. Remember that? Okay, so the people of Israel, the first audience, knew a thing or two about making bricks. What's more, coming from Egypt, they knew a thing or two about serious construction. Consider all the buildings of the ancient world, the ones that actually stand the test of time. You can look to, you can look to Egypt, in fact. What, what, was the, what were the pyramids made out of? Stone. It's incredible. They think they figured out how they did it, how they like used uh, canals and, 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 and like lever systems to move 20-ton blocks of stone. It's incredible what they did. All right? So... Moses and the people of Israel know that if you're going to build a real building, you need brick. I'm sorry. You need stone and you need mortar, cement to hold it all together. So let's see what, let's see what verse 3 says. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone 
and bitumen for mortar. So what Moses is saying is these people have these grandiose plans to make this big city and a big tower and a big name for themselves. They lack the acumen and they lack the technology to realize what it is they're trying to do. Bitumen is this sticky tar-like substance. And brick, of course, is just compressed baked clay, neither of which lasts forever, and neither of which is strong enough to make a tower that's going to go up into the sky. So he's kind of deriding them. He's pointing out what they don't have, brick, I'm sorry, stone and mortar, and underscoring what they're trying to use as cheap, pale substitutes. He's underscoring that this was not a serious endeavor. This was an act of hubris, unjustified pride. That is what hubris is, unjustified pride. When you just think you're the best, because you're sure, and you underestimate everything around you, you know, I, I like to, because this happened in my generation, you see the U.S.'s hubris back when, when, when President Bush declared victory in Iraq. And we thought we had that place mopped up with a tidy bow on it until that first IED went off. They took road farm chemicals and made a bomb that, and, and it, it made that war go from six months to 20 years. Hubris. Total misunderstanding, misreading, misestimation of the opposition. So mankind's hubris is on display here, but God realizes there's something bigger here than just them trying to engage in a building project. This passage is not about architecture and technology. God realizes what this represents. And so it says he comes down to see it. Now this figure of speech occurs a few times in the Bible. And it causes some people to say, does God not know what's going on? No, it's a figure of speech to show how concerning and how concerned God is. You see, throughout the Old Testament, God is portrayed as the great king. Now think about kings from human experience. Kings sit on their throne and they rule. Do kings visit the site of every little problem? No. They have, a, they have governors. They have, they have emissaries. They, they, they have someone who goes and then reports back to them. Even the president doesn't go visit the site of every little, little thing. So for a king to rouse himself and to come down and to get a local view, it's a statement of the gravity of the situation. So that's the literary device that's being used for us to understand that this was deeply concerning. And what is so deeply concerning? It's the fact that as God says, let us confuse, uh, it says that nothing, this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. God recognizes that what this is a symbol of, what this is a harbinger of, is the fact that now mankind has reached a point where they've realized that by putting their noggins together, they can do amazing things. 
And sure, right now they've only, this is the first meager step. It's like the first, it's like the first tottering step of a, of a toddler as it's learning how to walk. But, but, but it represents something. It represents that first step. That what's going to happen now is they're going to keep putting their heads together. They're going to keep doing stuff. They're going to keep expanding their capabilities and their capacities. And nothing will be unstoppable to them. And you see, it's not that God is opposed to technological advancement in architecture. What is he opposed to? He's opposed to what sinful people will do when they are united, the cascading qualities and effects of, and consequences of sin when people have put their energies into defining and, and describing and to actualizing ways of opposition to God. It would run rampant throughout the earth. The covenant of grace had already been instituted. God had already promised a coming mediator. God had already promised that he would not destroy the earth prematurely again. And so what does God do? We see God in chapter 9 instituting the death penalty as a way to restrain evil. And so now in judgment, he does something that ensures that we can't put our noggins together. What does he do? He creates the division that you see in the world. He creates the ethnic, linguistic, tribal distinctions that separate, that alienate man from man. And that keep it so that mankind cannot, with one accord, come together in unified opposition to God. This is the grown-up part where what we see in Genesis chapter 11, 1 to 9, is that God understands fully the human heart. And God understands that the human heart likes things that are like them and dislikes things that are not like them. And so when God creates... And, and folks, if, if what I'm saying bothers you, you have to wrestle with what this says. God is the one who did it. Now, what mankind has done, that's on them. But just as the principle is throughout all of Scripture that oftentimes God punishes sin with more sin, in this case, God says that the best way to keep sin from reaching insurmountable proportions is to diversify and spread out and divide humanity and keep such coming together impossible. And we think, oh, it's not impossible. Well, look at the civil world. People, it doesn't matter how much we want to pretend. Even with the British, who are probably our closest allies, we don't play all our cards on the table, politically wise. Their interests are not our interests all the time. And so there's, even though we hold hands half the time, Nonetheless, there, there, there's a little bit of distance because we understand, we, and when I say we, I don't mean us Christians, but we American government, there's differences. And it keeps us from coming together. So what does that do? 
Because we look at the sin in the world and how nation against nation has been such a horrible thing. And yes, it has because mankind is sinful and, and God, has, God has judged human sin with judgment that indeed, due to the sinful heart, creates the conditions where sinful people will fight each other instead of coming into cahoots with each other to rebel. What do we do with that? We recognize this is the bleak picture. And it's this bleak world where sin is running rampant. And God wants to restore the created order to what it was. And so he then calls a people. The prophets look forward to a day when these divisions will be no more, when they will not be needed anymore. Indeed, the prophets, for example, Zephaniah, says that the time will come when I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that they may all call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. And this is what then is ushered in at Pentecost. When we see the nations, the languages of the peoples, all hearing the same thing at the same time in their own tongue. And that reality then is manifest in the church. And you see this repeatedly in the New Testament. Every single letter of the New Testament, every single epistle that is, stresses the need for unity. Why? Because they are to live out the truth that in Christ, there is no longer any Jew and any Gentile. The nations, the ethnic divisions, the tribalisms that, that are, a, you might say, a necessary evil, kind of like divorce. God authorizes it in Scripture, but we're told that it's kind of a necessary evil as a constrainer against worse sin. Again, this is grown-up Christianity. But in the church, where we are redeemed of Christ, we are to lay aside all these divisions because he has made us one, as we're told in Ephesians chapter 2. The end of all things is the unity of God's creation and people. But in the meantime, there's struggle and strife as salvation history rolls along. And this is the matrix of our existence. And so, having looked at chapter 11, what do we see then about chapter 10? You thought I forgot about chapter 10, didn't you? I didn't. The table of the nations underscores the opposite truth. So chapter 11, 1 to 9 underscores that the divisions between ethnicities, tribes, whatever you want to call them, they were actually instituted by God to restrain evil. But there are some who would say, yeah, this justifies... No, it does not justify a mistreatment of other people. Chapter 10, 1 to uh, 23, underscore the opposite truth. That is, it underscores the fundamental unity of mankind. Enlisting all these tribes... And all these divisions and all these everything, Moses is reminding us that we all have a common ancestor. We all do. 
And we all could be traced back to three brothers, the sons of one man, Noah. What does that mean? This passage is unique in chapter 10. All these nations are listed. Guess which one isn't listed? Israel. Israel's not listed there. Did you notice that when we read it? Talks about Shem. Israel's not listed. Why is that? Moses wants to underscore by Israel's absence that whether the nations acknowledge God or not, God is still the God of the nations. God is still Lord over and sovereign over the nations. And by having Israel out from the list, it stresses the fact that Israel has a mission then to the nations. They are distinct from the nations. They are called out. They are a special people. That's repeatedly said in the, New Test- in the Old Testament. But they have a mission to the nations. They are to be that city on a hill. They are to be a light. And so... Israel is walking in the desert, understanding that the world situation they face is one of division, where the entire world is sort of sitting under the judgment of God. The the divisions they see represent God's judgment. But they are called then to speak into this dark moray. They are called to speak into it and to bring the good news. Will they? Well, we know the rest of the story. They didn't. In fact, they became like the nations. But in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. And Jesus came as the perfect Israel. And when he lived, he was living for all the people who would call upon his name. And when he died, he died for all who would call upon his name. And and Jesus in John 10 says that he has many sheep from this pasture and other pastures. These, These tables here in chapter 10. And he calls them into one. And so now we, the church, the Israel of God, those of us who have called upon the name of the Son, we are, we represent the new, the renewed humanity. And in us, the world should see things as they ought to be. When it's said you are a city on a hill and a light to the world, we are on display. This is why it is so urgent, brothers and sisters, that we live in a way that is in accordance with the gospel. Because the divisions out there, unfortunately, must exist until the end. But it's not the way it was meant to be. We have been redeemed so that we can show them what ought to be to prick within their conscience a longing for something better than what is. And so, brothers and sisters, this passage, in its original context, paints the bleak picture. But it's from that bleak picture, then, that the whole mission of the people of God becomes clear. And it's the reality that's being undone 
by Christ in the church. So, how will you live? Will you live like one of the residents of Babel? Or will you live like one of the residents of the heavenly city? Let's pray.